The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Remember that show back then. Remember that show. Turn on the TV, time was always flying. Why did they have to end? So many shows you forgotten. You say you've been waiting a whole month for more retro TV fun and you can't wait another minute? Not a problem. You better believe it, TV lovers. We're back with episode four of Remember That Show, and we're ready to achieve maximum coolness. I am one of your flamingo-loving co-hosts, Adam Pope. And I'm William Bruce West. Before we start, let me just see what I have packed in my magic trench coat here. Uh, microphone, cellular phone, megaphone, gramophone. Yep, we're good to go. In fact, I've been good to go since we announced this episode last time around. Parker Lewis Can't Lose is not a totally forgotten show, but it has never officially streamed anywhere. You want to count Crackle? Which makes it obscure and perfect for the podcast. Yeah, totally agree. You know, I've been watching my DVD copies, enjoying every minute, only to find out that, okay, you can find some episodes on YouTube. You can find all the episodes on archive.org. Did I need to spend the money on the dvds i think so there's commentaries i get nice crisp picture but either way i love this show and i have uh, you know since it was airing originally so we will get into that soon enough but before we jump back into that world of loud silk shirts and 90s hairstyles it's time to look back at our own days studying tv history as we play our theme song So this is one of those shows, Will, I mean, it's just, it's all about high school. And so I have to ask you, if you could attend any 80s or 90s television school, it could be elementary school, it could be, you know, a high school, it could be a college, which learning institution would you choose to enroll at? This one's tough. This one's really tough because a problem I always had with those shows is that unless you're in the group that the show revolves around, the principal only cares about that group. <laughs> you know, it's like building at Bayside, Mr. Feeney, like what about <laughs> these other students, you know? So like thinking about it, I would like to be at Millard Fillmore High School in Manhattan, but I would have to be a part of the Individualized Honors Program, also known as the IHP, and that is from head of the class. I mean, they... Got to do smart kids stuff, even though, like, it wasn't really an intense magnet program. They got to go to the Soviet Union. <laughs> like, it was, like, back in a time when we weren't really just, like, casually going to the Soviet Union. And I kind of, like, relate to that. So, like, I don't know. I always had a special spot in my heart. I feel like if I went to Fillmore, I would have gotten in the IHP. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Plus, you know, Robin Gibbons is going to be there. You're going to see Simone. I don't know the actress that played Simone, but... Yeah, I don't think she ever did anything else other than maybe some Lifetime movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is the one I thought I was going to be stealing from you. Most people would think it'd be for a different reason, but I was going to say Angel Grove High School. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, that's where they went. And you would think, okay, yeah, he wants an opportunity to be considered a teenager with attitude. He's going to get a Morpher. He's going to get a Zord. You know, life is going to be cool. But that's not it. The reason is... If I'm one of the other students there, we're probably only going to class like a month total out of each year because there's giant monsters attacking pretty much every day. And so you have to go in like a bomb shelter and hide out until the Power Rangers take care of it. So that's more time to go home and watch TV. So <laughs> that's my thought. Plus, if your dad's an insurance adjuster, you're the richest kid in town. <laughs> Well, anyway, Adam, during your high school days, did you ever experience any fellow students or crazy goings-on that seemed right out of a teen sitcom? Now, sometimes that's like the frame of mind. When you're a TV-loving kid, you see the world as a sitcom, right? You see people as characters. And my freshman year, having, you know, watched Saved by the Bell for all the years leading up to high school, the Zach Morris of my school was a senior. His name was Dan Van Voris, which is just the best name, right? Dan Van Voris. And he was like this fast-talking kind of schemer guy. He always had a little glint in his eye. He was always up to something. But he was elected to deliver the school announcements over the PA system each week, but he ran it like a drive time morning radio show, you know, and he would wrap up each session with like a top 10 list that was actually funny and like relevant to the school. You know, he had his sign off. He had all these things. I mean, really, I think I learned a lot about podcasting before that was a thing from listening to his announcements. But most important to me that made it feel like a sitcom is he turned Dr. Schmelzer, who was our principal, she was a rather large framed woman. She was his antagonist. He would like do playful jabs at her. Like he once told the joke where he mentioned her being cast on Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. <laughs> I just remember cracking up. And I was like, you can't do that. You know, she's going to come after you. So it, it was also like the courteous sitcom style joke, right? And so it just, it just really fit into my whole perception of him. But he was also, he was just like my hero he was very cool to me he pulled me into like our improv team and drama and all these other things and so the next year i ran for the same position and i lost out to two really annoying people whose comedy did not mesh well together and they had to share the position i was like maybe it's best i didn't win but i won the next year and then i got to do the announcements i've been planning it my antagonist of sorts, kind of love interest antagonist that I was playing up on the air, we had a, our student government advisor, Miss Parham, was like only like 25 or something, and she was like cute and everything. So I jokingly asked her out to a school dance over the PA, was comedically shut down on the air. It was great, you know? So it was just like, like I, I got to be that person and I got to idolize that person who just seemed like they stepped out of TV. But what about for you, Will? Any wacky happenings? Always. I mean, like you were saying, when you grow up with TV, you think like you're a TV minded person, your world, you have your like crew and your cast of characters. Every school year was a new season, you know, <laughs> like is that kind of you got new new supporting cast members, some left the show contract disputes, got some <laughs> new ones in there, got a little diversity in there. Like everybody was a character, honestly, like I've always said, like my life was an adventure until I hit like 25 and then it just got 
got boring. But like more characters and wackiness than we've even got time for tonight. <laughs> I'm sure. You know, and th- that reminds me actually, my sophomore year, it was so strange. We had these like two new kids that moved in. And one was this rich girl from Beverly Hills who was all sass and attitude. And the other was this like flamboyantly gay kid. And they were just like, they dominated like the drama department and everything for that year. They got leads and everything. And then they both moved the next year. It's like they got their own show somewhere. Right, right, right. <laughs> it was awesome. I mean, it's, but yeah, that's 100% how you think about it. But then we would actually turn on the TV and that was influencing those thoughts. And uh, so now we got to find out what the path was that was laid on this entertainment landscape of the late 80s and early 90s for Parker Lewis Can't Lose to get the green light. Well, we've talked about Beverly Hills 90210 in the past as a show that set the table for the young hot people-based soap opera boom that dominated the 90s. But Parker Lewis Can't Lose arrived on the scene in a pre-90210 world with a very different tone. Though Saved by the Bell premiered the year before on NBC Saturday mornings, there was nothing like Parker Lewis on the primetime schedule in 1990. Truth be told, this series owes much more to cult high school comedy feature films like Three O'Clock High or Better Off Dead than the adventures of Zach Morris and friends on the small screen. Though it's also hard to deny the inspiration of the classic Looney Tunes shorts given all the visual gags and sound effects present in the series. Honestly, the show is probably more inspiring than inspired by... For example, a show like The Adventures of Pete and Pete feels very Parker Lewis in its surreal and bizarre storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of those shows where you look at it and you're like, wow, I can't put it in a box. I can't really categorize it. Although, I think a lot of people, when it was on the air and when they think back, they point to the John Hughes iconic teen film Ferris Bueller's Day Off. They think that was the inspiration for the series. I think that is what got it the green light. But remember, that was the 80s. And this is like, you know, four years later. You know, I mean, th- th- this is a, a, a while uh, that it was in development with a Clyde film. Phillips and he was, you know, the guy kind of putting it all together. But when you think about it, Parker Lewis, yes, he's a confident and clever schemer. He's at odds with his principal and his little sister. That sounds like Ferris Bueller, but I would argue that the similarities really stop there. Because first of all, Parker Lewis, he doesn't break the fourth wall by talking directly to the camera. Melissa Joan Hart on Clarissa Explains It All would be much more Ferris Bueller inspired in that way. But he does everything via voiceover, so maybe it's more Wonder Years, even though it's not an older version of Parker Lewis, as far as we know, doing the voiceover. Actually, later in the second season, they reveal that it's a daily diary he does into a you know an audio cassette recorder. So we do understand that. But then also, Parker, he's never tried to like ditch school or selfishly slack off with his scheming. Like, he likes being in school. He's kind of the top dog there. He's trying to fight against the system in order to help other people out, whether it's his friends or just other students students he sees having a hard time so like i really think as characters they're very opposite like there's a slight slight similarity there but what do you think will do you agree or disagree 
I definitely agree. I mean, to sort of set the table on what was going on here, people sort of forget that Parker Lewis launched the same time as the Ferris Bueller TV adaptation on NBC that didn't have John Hughes involvement. And like looking back at that, it's sort of reminiscent of the 30 Rock versus Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip battle because in both cases, the underdog won. People assumed Ferris Bueller was going to be the hit because it's the adaptation of this popular movie, you know? Same with Studio 60, you had this, like, Aaron Sorkin-created behind-the-scenes look of a late-night sketch show, and then you've got... Tina Fey, who, yeah, she was head writer of SNL, but, like, she didn't have the television pedigree of an Aaron Sorkin. And Studio 60 got one season, <laughs> and Ferris Bueller got one season, you know? And I think when you're really, like, comparing and contrasting the characters, Ferris is an a-hole. Like, he, he yeah. really is. And Charlie Schlatter, who portrayed him in the TV show, his biggest sin was he wasn't an endearing a-hole, which Broderick somehow pulled off. But you got to remember, this was before he killed that family. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, he, he didn't have any controversy. He was beloved from war games and everything else up to that point. So, yeah, it's the first association. But I think as we talk more and more about the show, you're going to see just how different Parker Lewis is from Ferris Bueller in pretty much every way. Definitely, but now it's time to go deeper into what the show is all about as we give you the elevator pitch. Parker Lewis Can't Lose deals with the high school adventures of a student named Parker Lewis. Played by Corin Nimick, his best buds rock and roller Mikey, played by William Jane, and the awkward freshman genius Jerry, played by Troy Slayton. The trio navigate the troubles created for them by the dictatorial principal Grace Musso, played by Melanie Chartoff, and her fiendish student assistant Frank Limmer, played by Taj Johnson. Also in the mix are Gentle Giant and Force of Nature Larry Kubiak, played by Abraham Ben Ruby, Parker's jealous little sister Shelly, played by Maya Bruton, and Parker's parents who run the Mondo Video Rental Store. The series ran for three seasons on Fox from 1990 to 1993 and was one of the early successes for the network yeah this is definitely you know a show that was packed with great performers but they weren't household names but they really stood out in a big way now i will say as the show develops in the second season parker gets a long-term you know serious girlfriend named annie that relationship continues all the way to the end of the third season which was renamed to just parker lewis i don't know why i can't lose felt like it was old or dated they needed just a name but they went with that and they also added rotund stand-up comedian John Panette as a regular to the cast playing Hank Kohler who is a PE coach that's romantically obsessed you would say with Miss Musso I do have to say I loved John Panette on that series and then I remember going and buying his CD his stand-up CD show me the buffet and then I got to go see him live in the early 2000s before he passed away and that was just like a special night for me I'd never seen stand-up before live and I'm like yay I love you anyway it's worth mentioning mentioning that the series also had a ton of celebrity cameos throughout its run. So you had like rockers like Tom Petty, Ozzy Osbourne, Tammy Down from the Sunset Strip hairband Faster 
Mr. Pussycat. Like all these guys showed up for quick gags, but so did fellow Fox teen stars like David Faustino. And he was basically playing Bud Bundy. Like he references that the entire cast of Beverly Hills 90210. And most exciting to me though, Tiffany Brissett, aka Vicky from Small Wonder is one of Shelly's friends in an episode. I was like, I can't believe it because she did so little outside of Small Wonder. So when she pops up, you're like, woohoo. Uh, and also, well, I noticed this as because I, I, like I said, I've just been watching the series straight through. Two separate cast members from the first season of Charles in Charge, two of the Pembroke kids were on it. So Lila and Douglas, who was also the older brother in Mac and Me, both made an appearance. Lila especially jumped out to me because I had a huge crush on her as a kid, and she plays Parker's girlfriend for one episode. She's like, I have to let you go so you can be with your buds. It's, it's great. Anyway, but also Mila Jovovich is the love interest in the pilot. Brittany Murphy guest starred in an episode in the early days of her career as well. Like, is there anybody else that you're aware of? Oh, definitely. The one that really stuck out to me, because I didn't go through it straight like you did. I jumped around. I wanted a sampling of each season. So I was watching, in season two, there's Dance of Romance, when Limmer falls for, like, this mysterious kind of goth girl, but it's pre... Like, we wouldn't even know to call her goth then but what stuck out to me like when i saw her i'm like that chick is familiar and it's juliet landau who plays drusilla in buffy and she's essentially playing drusilla <laughs> like if you like kind of put them together it's like drusilla before spike turned her or maybe she turned Spike. I forget. Some Buffy person's going to jump on me for that. But she was one of my favorite Buffy characters. So when I saw that, I was like, wow. And then I also noticed the Mia Jovovich thing. And then there are some other people that I'll jump into later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it really is one of those shows, though, that when you go back and watch it now, you're like, okay, this person went on to this. Like, even like uh, one of the guys from Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is shows up in there. And I'm like, what? Joey? You know, one of the Dream Warriors is in this? So, yeah, you, you just never know who's going to show up on the show but it was truly kind of unique for its time in the way that it tapped into the pop culture and obviously we're excited about it so i i say we synchronize swatches and give out our cheers So as far as what I liked, I'm just going to say this, that I'm going to give it to you uh, everything. The, the show is so up my alley. It is insane. Like, it's hard even to know where to start. So I'm curious, just give me one of yours and maybe we'll go back and forth here. What What is like the thing that jumps out to you? Oh, man, there's there's a lot because I loved it, too. To me... There's this thing I carry with me. There's something I consider to be like the quintessential Fox show. It's funny, like you'll find out a show was developed for one network and then ends up in another one. And you can kind of tell, or at least I can, because it doesn't fit the personality of the network. Like this was developed for CBS, but CBS turned it down. So then it was like retooled, redeveloped, ended up on Fox. This to me is the quintessential early 90s Fox show. It is as Fox as Fox can get. <laughs> and like, I just have a special place in my heart for that era. Like everything about it. I mean, Fox Sunday nights. This is before Simpsons moved there. It's still on Thursdays at this point. You've got every show when it starts. It's in stereo where available in cursive. <laughs> 
you know like i mean the the series finale has like a snippet of studs in it this takes me back to like my special place like i'm coming to the realization lately that i'm not really a child of the 80s like it it took me a long time to really get to that point but like the 90s is really when things started like mattering to me because i was in a completely different place than my peers in the 80s so like this is fox to me like even as it evolved into like world's craziest murderous bears or like the reality (laughs) stuff or masked singer now this to me is like the snow globe that captures the essence of fox Oh, absolutely. I do have to ask, though, so my recollection all these years, and I don't know if I was catching it in reruns, but, you know, this was a primetime series, but I remember catching it on, like, Saturday afternoons, like, when the Bill and Ted live-action series was airing as well. Like, it would be, like, Bill and Ted and Parker Lewis. But, I, I mean, maybe I was watching it at night, but in my memory, it was always afternoon. So you remember tuning in Sunday nights and checking it out? Oh, definitely. Sunday night, and it was, like, early early Sunday night like it was never after eight I want to say it was even like in that seven o'clock slot but I know that gets kind of tricky when Fox got football so don't quote me there but it <laughs> it basically kicked off Sunday night it was like the family part it would always be like Parker Lewis and maybe True Colors or like Parker Lewis and even when I watched today on YouTube it was like coming up next shaky ground you know <laughs> like that was the block it was in and then you would shift into like the adults stuff at nine which was married with children and duets or married with children that predates parker lewis but that was kind of like how fox treated sunday night at nine yeah definitely i i was watching it first run got it okay well now the thing that stands out to me that really made it special is that The series is shot single camera, which was pretty rare for a sitcom at that time and and shot on location. It's outdoors, it's indoors, but it was in a physical, actual high school they were filming at. And so it feels like a mini movie each week. Every episode felt like, oh, this is like a production. And so to me, what really stands out is there's a beginning, a middle and an end that's unique to every single story. There isn't necessarily a formula. There's lots of running gags. There's catch phrases, their signature jokes for each character, but it never feels repetitive. You never know actually what is going to happen next because it could just take a genre turn suddenly experimental and I'm just like this thing is amazing, but it's literally anything goes. Like Jerry might pull a fax machine out of his coat or suddenly be crawling on the ceiling to escape danger, you know, or Coob, you know, might become an intimidating security guard for Mondo Video or have a nerdy freshman living in his stomach because he ate him. You know, like Mikey might play his guitar on top of the school or play his guitar sitting on a motorcycle at the beach. Mikey didn't have a lot of range. Mikey, they didn't do much with, okay? But again, the unpredictability of the gags. Because if you looked at them, it was a standard, like, Saved by the Bell high school plot. If you just look at, like, the basic description, this is what's going to happen in the episode. But the tidiest gag, the tidiest everything, like, made it completely unique and nothing you could say, oh, yeah, well, I've seen that before. You're like, no, you haven't seen this before. (laughs) Exactly. 
exactly. I have that in my notes. I, I put it down as like the plot swerve that like it didn't always have a sitcom ending. It didn't always go where you expected it to wrap up in 22 minutes. Like two things jump out at me about that. There's an episode in season two where it becomes more of an ensemble show. It's less just around Parker, but like the supporting cast is huge at that point. And they bring in Nick who works at the Atlas Diner. And Nick's giving advice to everyone and his advice just makes everyone fall in love. But you find out that like Nick's powers are weakened when he can't find love himself. So he's really pursuing one of the teachers at the high school and she's just not interested. And he really like turns on the charm and meanwhile he's trying to like coach Lemmer into how to pursue prototypical Drusilla because <laughs> it's that same episode. In a typical sitcom fashion or as Steve Urkel has taught us he would have worn down that teacher and eventually gotten her in the end but he doesn't she's not interested he has to realize that but then there's this other woman who comes completely out of nowhere who's perfect for him and it's like oh this has been in front of me the whole time so like that was one thing and then the series finale which I hope we get to talk about but like it's ultimately a clip show because it's one of those deals like you knew they knew they weren't coming back but they really didn't have anything in the can plus this predates the era where you had to end on a cliffhanger or even had to have some like grandiose series finale so in that situation i thought it was fitting but what stands out about that episode they're trying to close down the atlas diner at this point john panette runs the diner they need to save the diner it's the typical save the youth center plot from like every 80s movie and they don't save it like, you know, like you expect some like 11th hour kind of like salvation. Oh, the Atlas is saved. No, the Atlas is not saved. Like the wrecking crew comes, the power goes out. They even kind of flash forward a little bit where there's like stagnant water in the parking lot goodbye it's almost as dark as the dinosaurs ending in some ways you yeah. know <laughs> like and that's our final taste of parker lewis yeah i mean it, it's amazing how they dared to take so many chances and just say nope we're doing it differently but the thing you mentioned there is that it really is an ensemble show and it is cast perfectly. It's like the lightning in a bottle. It's like Friends, where it's just like the chemistry between everybody. Every actor knows their character. The writers consistently create specific jokes for each character's personality. The timing and the delivery of the jokes, like everybody's in sync. It, it's not generic dialogue that just anybody could slip into and make work. Like it had to be these actors with their unique delivery. If any one of them had been off, the show just would have collapsed immediately. And it does. Like everybody is on point. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that, just some of the characters, because for example, we mentioned this earlier, Parker Lewis could have so easily been the smarmy, self-centered Zach Morris type. And he's not. I mean, he legitimately likes his friends, unlike Zach Morris, who is using all his friends and calling his best friend supposedly Screech an idiot every episode. He's concerned for their well-being. In fact, most of the plots, at least in the early seasons, you know, season and a half, I'd say, revolve around him seeing someone else having a difficult time and trying to figure out how he can help using his unique set of skills, which is what? He's He has a complex video surveillance system set up all over the school. He can see everything at all times. He's recording everything uh, at all times, it seems. But also, everybody just likes him. 
so he can call in favors because he's a nice guy who helps people out all the time. And so he's like, oh yeah, this person needs this. Oh yeah, we'll hook him up. But he's a schemer, but not a devious one. And he he might play pranks even on his sister, but that's usually in retaliation for her trying to sabotage him. And he's just one step ahead. He's the equalizer, but a friendship, you know? Like he's not killing people. He just, he uses his unique set of skills to help his friends. Yeah, he's not like trying to mentally destroy the people who come in as an antagonist or humiliate them, really. He's a genuinely good guy who's just like, let's be reasonable here. Let's kind of keep the peace. And that was very rare for sitcom characters at this time. He's just, he's such an ideal that you didn't see. It's like everybody was allowed to be jerks back then. I want to ask your thoughts on Miss Musso, though. Melody Chardoff is amazing. I wrote this on Twitter back in May, and I'm pretty sure I've written it several times in the past 15 years I've been on Twitter, but Miss Musso has a weird sexuality that I'd never seen before, and I have never seen since. There were certain things growing up, like I grew up with the Golden Girls. Yeah, Blanche sleeps around, but it's kind of like a humorous thing. And like she's postmenopausal and it's like, it's like you're supposed to understand like, hey, older women can still be frisky, that kind of thing. But I was too young to really take that in. But Miss Musso hit at just this right age for me where she is a lonely, horny 40-year-old school administrator who just, she's got to keep the peace and be stern, but like, she's kind of jealous of the female students who are actually going all the way when she's not, you know? Like, she's she's got her needs and everything, too. And Melanie Chardoff is perfect. She's one of those, like, Hall of Fame pop culture characters that's underrated. That's up there with, like, Frank Bonner as Herb Tarlick. Like, I think she deserves to be on, like, a commemorative plate. Yeah, I mean, really, like everything she does, it's weird, right? Because she's ruling, you know, Santo Domingo, you would say. She's got a well-manicured iron fist, but then she's showing this like hilarious insecurity. She's this woman trying to keep up appearances that she's in charge, but then it's almost like she sees Parker not as like a challenger to anything. He's dangerous, but he's part of the ecosystem, so I got to keep everything in check here. But she yells, she schemes, she revels in conversation causing anxiety among her students, pushing the limits of her power to the edge. But like you said, like, she's super horny. She's seeing Chippendale dancers just appear in the hallways. And this show, I will say also, is very equal opportunity. Like, yeah, there's a lot of cheerleaders in biker shorts. And I don't know what you call the tops and same same deal back in the day, you know, they're basically like sports bras, you know, and biker shorts. But then there's always hunky guys around too. So they really do that. But like, she is so funny because she likes the hunky guys but then there's an episode where it's revealed she's a Donny Osmond stalker and like he shows up for a cameo. She's also like you were indicating, right? She is that classic late 80s professional woman who defined femininity for me in a big way at that time. Just petite ladies and blazers with the big shoulder pads. They're wearing skirts with the nylons, lots of makeup and jewelry. Their hair's a little teased out. Like there's just a look from that time. She is what like all teachers and like professional moms, the moms I knew that worked, you know, like that was their look. She's it. <laughs> She's 80s hot. Like yeah. she was a, a holdover relic by Parker 
Lewis, but she's like hot in a way that you could only be hot then. Like you can look back on like season three, four married with children and like the women Al would lust over and you're like, really? But that's what was hot. Like she is quintessential Fox hot. <laughs> like if I, if I ever stumble back in time and find myself in 1990, I'm going to the nearest singles bar and looking for her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do want to mention too, like in the mix, like we don't have to go through every single character, but I think Troy Slayton as Jerry is very unique in how they handle him because he could have so easily been the screech. He could have been the one that's a little socially awkward and everybody picks on him and he's a loser, but they keep him around so they feel better about themselves. But it's strange. He chooses to be subservient to Parker Lewis. Like, that is his choice. He's like, I want to be his right-hand man. I want to be his secretary. I want to take his lunch order. Like, there's an episode where he goes out of that and he hangs out with, like, a different guy. Well, actually, there's several episodes where, okay, now, now he's cool. Now he's a jock. Now he tries all these different hats on, but he always comes back to just being himself, which is, I'm friends with Parker. Parker respects me, but I also am not trying to be the leader in any way. I like playing second. Well, he's third fiddle mikey's second fiddle you know but i just i'm curious to get your take on jerry because i can't think of any other show where that has happened I agree with that. And I know this kind of dips a little bit into like a later section. But in my mind, if there is a fourth season and the show ends there, this whole thing is kind of like an internship for Jerry. He's learning from Parker because Parker is like the most worldly person in his life. And it's reminiscent of the same relationship from National Lampoon's Van Wilder between Van Wilder and Todd. And if you ever saw, because if there's anyone in my life who has seen it, it's going to be you, the straight to video sequel, The Rise, Rise of Taj, yeah. <laughs> where he assumes the Van Wilder position. He is promoted to top dog. And I feel that once Parker graduates, because keep in mind, Jerry's a freshman in the beginning, while Parker's what, junior at that point, yeah, I want to say? Yeah, so fun. there is some disparity there. Someone's going to have to take over when Parker goes off to like wherever the hell he's going to end up, <laughs> you know? So that's how I see Jerry. It's like, it's a mutual respect. There are ranks, like you said, he is third fiddle, but he's taking it all in like at the end he will be a more fleshed out and realized human from his interaction with Parker. Yeah, it, it's a great evolution. He actually starts dating Shelly, basically, like they're an item by the end. And for those who don't know, Shelly is the little sister from Adventures in Babysitting, and she's a great, great part of the cast as well, because just just even just her, Parker! <laughs> like, when she's yelling at her brother, like, she's so great. She's equally as clever and scheming as Parker, and she does a great job in that. But um, one thing that you brought up the show being a quintessential 90s Fox show for that time. For me, the time capsule element works so well because the jokes are dated, but in the best way. It's not a they didn't age well type of way. It's like they are of the moment, right? Like now there's a few things like, you know, that would fly now, like the occasional joke about like ogling girls at cheerleader tryouts or girls swim team practice and they're recording it or whatever it is, you know, got their binoculars. And you're just like, okay. But other than that, like the of the moment references in pop culture, you're, they're going to make jokes about Bell Bill 
Biv DeVoe. When are you ever going to hear about Belle Biv DeVoe again? Or th- that might have been the only time. <laughs> like, I don't know. Then they would just grab something that immediately had just happened. Like in season two, there's a Terminator 2. Coob turns into, you know, the T-800. He gets a leather jacket. He gets the glasses. There's, you know, robotic sounds as he's walking through the hallway, that kind of stuff. Or the one that, like, I love so much is they do an episode where Jerry is addicted to video games and they show the original NES, Sega, the Atari Lynx, Tiger Electronics handheld games, and actual gameplay, like, of all those things with the sound effects. I actually did an article on Retro Days years ago about video games appearing in movies and TV shows and grabbed a bunch of screen caps from that episode. Like, they would just, they would take what was really happening and do it. And even bigger for me, what wins my heart overall, just about this series going back to it, is that the Parker Lewis family business is a video rental store. It's Mondo Video. The walls are covered with movie posters. It's Die Hard 2. It's Home Alone. Like, it's everything. Like, of course, for me, my eyes are just staring at all the VHS boxes on the shelves. Like, I have that. I need that. You know, like, I get so excited. But just the, the, the time capsule that it all is, is amazing. It definitely is. And I mean, like, on down to, like, the setting, the jokes, even the cast, it, it's full of, we, we mentioned it before like a lot of people got their starts there but then there are also a lot of people who fall into the like I know that guy category you know like Parker's dad Timothy Stack in my mind Timothy Stack has had three roles in his life he was Parker Lewis's dad he was Notch Johnson on Son of the Beach and he had Dick Dietrich's nightstand you know which all of those could be mentioned in a future episode of the show (laughs) but he's definitely like and I know that guy and even like in the Atlas Diner there were like waitresses and stuff where when you look at their face and then you kind of do the math you're like I know who that is but of course they're uncredited because they don't have any lines you know it's such a time capsule yeah they did such a great job and honestly like this could be its own podcast and i could dissect every episode every gag the only last thing i just want to mention quickly is that the simpsons had the couch gag right so what did parker lewis have they had opening and closing pre-credits post-credits little stingers that they would do in the first season at least it would always be like opening up a refrigerator opening up a microwave and opening up you know a soda dispenser you know like in the hallway like just all those types of different things that they would put together and it's always super clever it doesn't have anything to do with the episode but just the ingenuity of that idea it feel like it's not something that you saw all the time in particular like the one with the soda machine cracked me up because you know every member of the cast will come in front of it and something will happen you know it won't come out right or whatever but then Kubiak just lifts up the entire machine so the whole camera goes with him and then it sprays right into his mouth and you're just like the mechanics of what all the directors had to do on this show is amazing just like the kinetic energy and the way they staged everything going on and because it's not just like the Dutch angles on the camera you would think there'd be a lot more like sped up film than there is in this show. There's really not a lot, but there's a ton of sound effects that make you think everything is sped up, you know? Definitely. They were creating a lot of just camera tricks that are have probably been repeated since but had never been done before. There was the article you sent me where they like rejoined the creators at 
it was one of the anniversaries, I guess it was like 25th or something, and they were talking about one of the camera sight gags they did where Mikey throws his guitar off the top of the school, and they actually put a camera on the guitar. They were like, we need this shot of it like rushing down to the crowd. And they were like, the network was like, they're like, no, we have to put this camera on the guitar. And you see the shot and you're like, okay, yeah, it was worth it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just again, the visual language of the show and how much they let the directors just be creative you can really tell and, and yeah reading those interviews listening to the commentaries they say like oh yeah you know that we would just kind of let them do what they could with the script wherever they wanted to take it but one person that i thought you should know one of the directors who worked on the show quite a bit especially the first season was a guy named brian spicer who went on to direct mighty morphin mighty power, Morphin rangers power rangers the movie, the movie. <laughs> You know, I didn't even connect those dots. <laughs> you never know. You never know who's going to pop up behind the camera and Parker Lewis. But hey, we're laughing. We're having a good time singing its praises, but it can't last forever, right? So uh, we're going to go from our cheers into our jeers. Boo! 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 All right. What do you think, Will? Is there a criticism that you can lob at the show? There few they feel nitpicky but there's a few season two gets a little weird to me because parker gets a girlfriend and i feel that parker needs to be treated the same way marvel looks at peter parker in that he shouldn't be in a successful relationship you know he should be good with women but I don't want him tied down. And I just think there's more story potential there because, I mean, just going back to the pilot, like Mikey falls for Mia Jovovich. Parker falls for Mia Jovovich. Doesn't realize Mia Jovovich is who Mikey fell for. You know, it's like love triangle stuff and you can only mine that so often i'm gonna need your opinion on this but from my jumping around through episodes i don't think parker's girlfriend added anything like from the episodes i saw she has no personality whatsoever she's not necessarily like even by 90 standards she's not like oh my god she's gorgeous she looks like the kind of girl that maybe got discovered in like a shopping mall model hunt you know <laughs> like but she she might say two things per episode. They're mainly to rub Parker's back. She doesn't have like any autonomy. The show wouldn't pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> You know, like... no, I mean, that that's the thing. She is there to be the perfect supportive girlfriend to Parker. That's all like, yeah, there's an episode where she gets jealous or Parker is, you know, attracted to another girl now or an old girlfriend who dumped him comes back like all that happens. But you never feel like Annie is like this great, great character. She's not funny. That's the number right. one thing. She doesn't add comedy to the series. And that's what slides all the way from, you know, season two, the end of season two into season three is the comedy starts losing its bite. And this is how I feel like in the first season, right? The buds, as they call themselves, the best buds, they are the three musketeers fighting against the tyranny of authority together. They're totally in sync, like literally, like they know each other's moves. They're working together. And then in season two, they start doing stories where they're bickering 
with each other. They're fighting amongst themselves. You're like, wait, wait, no, no, no. But more often than not, it, the culprit is girls. Mikey gets a girlfriend that takes him away from the group. Parker's all bad, but then Parker does it permanently for the rest of the series. And you're like, what are you guys doing over there in the writer's room? You're ruining this because I, I will say personally, I had a three-man best friend situation in high school. And when one of the guys in our unit ditched the other two of us for a girlfriend, it was emotionally very hard. Now it was cool for us because we actually became better friends. We're still friends to this day. But she was to us in our minds a harpy from hell. Like it was just like no, she yokoed the group. <laughs> yeah, you broke up the group, you yoko, yeah. But still, the problem is allowing realistic teen angst to invade the goofy world of Parker Lewis is wrong. It's unwelcome as an audience member. Like Mikey was the angst-ridden one of the group, and he played it so over the top, it was very melodramatic, so it was funny. He's like, oh, Park, I just, you know, he's always talking like this. You know, he's very Luke Perry before Luke right. Perry, or yes. simultaneously with Luke Perry, you know, but that made the show lose its charm in a lot of ways, because they just changed the dynamics so much. You say, well, I don't want things to repeat themselves, but you gotta stay on brand. You gotta stay with the characters as that we came to love. You can't change it so quickly. Exactly. And from like a network standpoint, I could kind of see the argument for pulling off the can't lose because I feel by season two, Parker lost. It's like you said, it's a decline that continues through the end. There is a point, I keep going back to the same episode, even though I swear I watched more than this, <laughs> but back to Dance of Romance. It stood out to me for a lot of reasons. First off, Nick, who works at Atlas Diner, is played by Paul Johansson. Had a lot of roles as like dreamy, handsome guy in the 90s, but in the like early to mid 2000s, a lot of people of our generation and slightly younger will know him as Dan Scott of Dan Scott Motors from one tree hill there's a famous video clip floating around where he's waiting for his heart transplant and a dog eats it <laughs> look it up it's amazing but he's one of the best tv villains of the past 50 years anyway in the episode nick he's so cool like i don't know his whole thing because again jumping around but he's so cool that he dulls parker's shine like i'm watching that episode and i'm kind of like you're cooler than parker you have ruined the whole vibe here why do i care about parker when there's a nick and i think that like audiences and even like the network figured that out because nick's gone in season three but that started to show like the chink in the armor of like maybe there's only so far we can go with parker being this charming problem solver and it becomes more of an ensemble at that point but like another jeer by the end i feel like the ensemble is almost too big because you've got the buds over here you've got muso and it almost seems like she has shelly as like a muso in training over here and then you've got john panette and Coob over here and really Coob is the glue for everyone like if he got hit by a bus <laughs> no one has any reason to talk to the others anymore and it's like it's a great ensemble but we'll get into it in the next sequence. But like, yeah. I just think it got a little unwieldy. And like you said, lost its edge. I, I will say I actually had the opposite reaction. Not that the cast wasn't big and unwieldy and separate, but that I feel what happens is it actually becomes too much about Parker because now it's about 
okay, Parker's evolution, especially the beginning of season three, he's like, I'm going to change my style. I'm going to be an all new Parker Lewis. I'm getting a new haircut. I'm doing this. You know, there's like, there's an episode, like I think in season two, where he's like, I'm going to spend the night with Annie. Like all these different things where it's like about his goals now. And it's, he is being selfish. Whereas before, literally he was a force that was influencing everything around him, but he wasn't always pursuing his own desires. And I felt like more and more stories were just about what is Parker want now? What's Parker dealing with? And that bummed me out. But also I, I do have to mention, you know, you're talking about the Atlas Diner. I hate the Atlas Diner. Okay. I do too. It's not the Peach Pit. They no, want it, it to be. To be the, they, they're like, this is where half the action is taking place now, most of the time. And that's the problem is so, of course, I love Mondo video. It all but disappears by season three. I think there's like one or two episodes where it shows up, right? So that's gone. Whereas the first season was like 100% the high school or Mondo video. That was it. And now like they're, they're moving. Like if you see the parents, they're at home now. They're not at Mondo video anymore. I sh we should mention about the parents too. So in the pilot, they have have for the mom you know and she only appears really like just very briefly is that uh, mary ellen trainer who is the 80s mom she was the mom in goody she's the mom in monster squad she's also she's a lethal weapon she was just in everything she's there for the pilot when they go to series for the first season they get this other lady to fill in and and she she plays the mom for the first season but second season mary ellen trainer is back and she's not quite as wacky as the first mom but they got who they wanted in there but anyway getting back to the diner so the atlas diner the reason i don't like it is because just like you're saying with nick being the super suave cool handsome guy everything in the diner is lit like an 80s denim jeans commercial you know like it's just everything is so cool and we gotta tell you about it and like the whole vibe it's too stark all it is is glass bricks and like chrome and like white you know formica on the ground you know there's just nothing that's interesting the high school school is colorful and the set decoration is like quirky and weird and it becomes like this like you know meeting place for everybody and i'm just like no like i i think it's the holdover of the people who grew up in the 50s and you always had a diner you met at just like say by the bell and everything else and they wanted it they couldn't afford it season one they got a bigger budget season two we could build a set and it was just like ah you guys blew it like you took away the charm of the series that way so every scene that's in the atlas diner i cringe i'm just like ah See, now we're now we've got like point counterpoint because I kind of go the other way. <laughs> we're like, well, first off, recasting the parents in the pilot. Parker's dad is also played by this guy whose name I never remember, but I know he was in one episode of Seinfeld and he played Lex Luthor in the syndicated Superboy series in That's the right. late 80s. And then they got Timothy Stack. So the parents, they just couldn't figure out. <laughs> but going back to the Atlas Diner, I too hate the Atlas Diner, but I I didn't look at it as like it was done out of desire like for this like reminiscent like hangout from the 50s. I thought it was done out of necessity because they probably lost access to the school. You know what I mean? Like it's a lot easier to shoot on a set than on location. Like the fact that most of the action is confined to the diner now, that just felt like it was budgetary concerns to me. That actually makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. I, I, I didn't put those pieces together yes absolutely so either way you know that's where they went and I, I will say by season three they also do a lot of like outdoor shoots like there's like the first few uh episodes are just set in the summer 
So like they're set like, oh, we're outdoors doing things. There's people walking around in bikinis and like, you know, like, but they're in a public park. You're like, wait, what are you doing? Like, I don't understand. And I will say also season three gets really sexy. Like there's, it's a lot more shirtless people. It's a lot more ogling, you know, like they're, I think they really were trying to compete with Beverly Hills that are two and oh, like, yeah, up the sex factor, you know? Well, you know, they're getting network notes because at this point it's 93. So you're going up against like 902 which is still like ascending but then you've also got to realize Zach Morris is about to graduate and go to college you still had the residual effects of there's been a good year and a half where Zach Morris schemer was at the top of his game so like you've got some network suit who's like okay over on Saturday morning on NBC they got this Gosler guy and then like they got the Perry guy earlier on Fox like we got to get some of that that sex appeal in here yeah now the last thing i want to mention you know because kind of the opposite of sex appeal for this show is what what we've said about this show is like there isn't a lot of degrading humor like it's pretty respectful to all the characters even the ones who are brought in to be like strange and odd it's kind of like well everybody's strange and odd so so they treat it with respect and larry kubiak he vacillates between being a big stupid oaf who can't stop eating to a witty and educated sophisticate just depending on the scene they'll just suddenly something clicks and now he can like quote some philosopher or something like that you know so that dichotomy is funny but the jokes are at the expense of Abraham Ben Ruby of his size, which is unfortunate. It's like, could you imagine if a large person could be smart and not always stuff their face with food? Like fat people have feelings, you know, and you're just like, that's stupid. You know, like I, I hate that they have to go to that so often. Like it's it's a show full of archetypes. Okay. Everything is very, very heightened, but feeding him fish like a killer whale and making his catchphrase eat now like it's insulting you know it's not as bad as the critic they don't hate the character he's beloved by everybody around him and the writers you can tell have an affection for the character but it's just it's still very frustrating to me to see it go back and forth because you see what he's capable of and then they always go back to eat now see counterpoint (laughs) because i see that but i felt like Kubiak is written as a gentle giant. I think that Abraham Ben Ruby brought certain things to the role that weren't necessarily written into it. So it's one of those, like, he happened to be a bigger guy. So some of the weirdness could be misconstrued as fat jokes, but walk with me here. If you swapped him out and put in Richard Maul as Bull from Night Court, the jokes still work. That's a good point. He's just a big guy, like a big right. frame. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's a good point. Cause he, he is basically a force of nature. Yeah. Is what he is. But then again, by season three, he is less stupid. He is kind of like the fourth bud. Like they even say in like season two at some point, they're like, Larry, we consider you a friend, you know, like, so that is definitely where they were going with it. So I, I can agree with that. I guess I just, it'd be interesting to see if you could uh, count and say, okay, so 
how many, you know, jokes are, are him eating, you know, a giant leg of lamb and how many are him like playing a character now that's more along those lines as opposed to, okay, you know, he's just so giant and he's shaking the whole school, which happened a lot, or he's roaring like Godzilla, you know, like all those types of things are, are pretty much uh, what is happening most of the time. But I mean, you do change my perception a little bit with that Richard Mole thing and RIP Richard Mole. Well, uh, before we get into our, our last segment here, I do want to ask you a question because, you know, we talk about how much we love these characters. That's why we're passionate if they're not handled right. So the actors themselves, where have you seen them pop up in other shows where you're just like, oh, I know them for Parker Lewis? Um, Abraham Ben Ruby ruined ER for me. Oh no. <laughs> like the entire, what was it? 15 years? Like all those seasons, anytime he popped up, it's like, well, there he is, you know? Because I mean, like, Troy Slayton did it for me too, because he did go to Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad, which yeah. is one of the the better known Power Ranger ripoffs, which isn't, but that somebody's gonna jump on that. But <laughs> like he he played a character in the first season. Damn. Yeah, he always stood out to me because those are my initials. So I was like, oh, he has my initials. Amp. Yeah, I can't believe it. It's Jerry from Parker Lewis. Right, right, right. But yeah, no, like that whole season, I was like, this is great. I get to see Jerry again. And then he's replaced with a surfer guy in the second season. It's not even a second season. There's like one season, but it's like 56 episodes. So in halfway point, they're like, bye, you're going away. I, I will say Abraham Ben Ruby for me as well. So he has like a five line cameo in the shadow, the 1994 Alec Baldwin film, which is one of my favorites. So every time he pops up, I'm like, Coob. So like, that's very fun. But also I remember watching that Seth Green movie uh, without a paddle, which is oh. not very good, but all of a sudden he shows up in the middle of it as like a weed farmer or something. And I'm just like, what are you doing here, Coob? All right. Uh, I know a lot of people, you know, probably maybe even more so now, like a certain section of fandom no Corinemic from Stargate the TV series I guess he had a long running role on that but I never watched it I was like I know MacGyver was on it and Parker Lewis was on it but I have no need for that show it wasn't long like he's a fill-in character he's on for like a season and a half like uh. he probably could have stayed longer but it was like backstage politics I'm a big Stargate guy like, and I actually hate his seasons because <laughs> because I can't look at him without seeing Parker Lewis. <laughs> and he was an alien, so... That's hilarious. Oh, man. Okay, well, hey, you know, we, we saw some things in the show that were broken, and we want to fix them. So we got to rush into that emergency room. We got to find out how we want to change the show to help it either get another season or how we would reboot it for today's audiences. So we are going to play Show Doctors. I looked at it and I said, okay, what was the charm of the original show that they lost as the series went on? And to me, it was a live action cartoon. You know, it's like the same reason I love Scott Pilgrim. Like they translated a comic book idea and really put it on the screen in that way. So I think a reboot now 
of Parker Lewis would work well as an animated series, but in a throwback 2D animation style. So it would be a 90s love fest. I mean, it's not set in the modern day to to appeal to kids of the YouTube generation. That's not what we're doing here. It's for middle-aged, retro-loving folks like us. And in particular, I think it'd be fun if they did a lot of style parodies each episode, because they would do that a lot. They'd get experimental. And so, like, Teen Titans Go does that a lot. You know, we're doing this type episode. We're doing this type episode. And I think you get the production crew from Teen Titans Go. They would have the right energy for an animated Parker Lewis series, which, while aimed at kids of the 90s like us, I think the wackiness they would infuse it with would appeal to all ages. And the best part is you could easily bring in the original cast, especially Melanie Chardoff. You know, Miss Musa was the voice of Dee Dee Pickles, the mom on Rugrats for decades. So she's got that whole history, you know, she's, she knows how to work it. So that would be my choice, animated Parker Lewis. Interesting. Okay. So... I know we look at it two different ways, how we would have kept it going or how we would bring it back. As far as keeping it going, I wouldn't have. Like I'd said before, I think it maybe had one more season in the tank, but three seasons in the early 90s on Fox is a blessing. People take that for granted. One of my favorite Family Guy jokes is the cold open of the first episode after the cancellation because a lot of people don't if you're not into family guy family guy was canceled after his first three seasons it was off the air for about three years but the reruns on adult swim made fox bring it back so in the cold open they're talking about like well maybe fox will bring us back and peter goes into this like 30 second like list of all of the shows that would have to be canceled before fox would make that decision and he proceeds to list every show that Fox launched and canceled in the three-year span between their cancellation and them coming back. And it's a lot. Like, the joke is, if you end up on Fox, they pick up your show to cancel it. They really do. So, like, three seasons was enough. I loved the finale as a clip show. I thought it was fitting. I thought the show was losing steam, and it really only had, like, one more year in it because it is a time capsule. And we were moving into, like, mid-90s, and things were about to change. But to bring it back now, I would love to do that. As like a streaming series, put it on, like, Hulu or Netflix, probably Hulu. It's kind of inspired by... Corin Nimick and David Faustino are best friends, Bud Bundy, in real life. And about 10 years ago on Crackle, there was this web series called Starving. And it's like a mockumentary reality show, but it follows David Faustino, who is just dying to get a Married with Children reboot happening because he's broke. And Coronimic is also broke because he has no Parker Lewis money left. So they run a porn shop. And like <laughs> the, these mini-sodes, I think they're still on Crackle. At this point, they might be on YouTube. But, like, these minisodes have cameos, like, Bud actually approaches Ed O'Neill and Christina Applegate and is like, come on, like, I need this, like, I need this back. And, and they turn him down, and Corin has, like, no one to turn to. But, like, in my head, I've been thinking about that for a while, because it really only had one season, because Faustino's been really trying to do this Married with Children reboot, and... 
this predated like when we were getting Fuller House and those things like we weren't in that frame of mind so with like the ingredients of that and where TV is now because we didn't really touch on how it was inspiring like the creators went on to give us scrubs and like a lot of surreal shows that didn't work then like that was one of my jeers it was ahead of its time it's a smart show but even today when we talk about smart shows that's a euphemism for nobody's watching it arrested development was a smart show but it's like why aren't you watching it it's so it's so intelligent same there it was a full house roseanne world where parker lewis didn't fit in but to fast forward to now we're used to that so back to that thought process of parker lewis lost I want, like, Parker Lewis returns. I want us to rejoin Parker where he is now. Corin Nimick's still in great shape. He still looks young-ish. And I want us to see Parker emerge from a bad period of his life and kind of try to recapture who he used to be. It's kind of like a he's finding himself and he knows that that old Parker is inside of him, but like the world has gotten in the way and life has gotten in the way and it's really rebuilding himself and we get to see like where people are today. Where is Shelly today? I think Troy Slayton would pop in he's a lawyer now but like i think we could get him billy jane's not doing anything you know and this isn't like a long-term show especially in today's climate where netflix will cancel you after three seasons anyway this is like a two-year commitment and there's a little bit of like yes the parkerism in him is timeless but he still is a man out of time like this is a guy who was cool 30 years ago so how is he cool in 2023 using what he has has like carried with him through life like i think parker lewis could win again <laughs> you know parker lewis wins that's what we could call it but really like i want to revisit him today where he hasn't been winning he lost at some point over the last 30 years and it's really like how parker gets his groove back okay i i mean i can see it that definitely feels like again there'd be a reason to keep bringing in all the old characters and mix them back in it's like the people that cared about him the people he helped now I want to help him and yeah like all the goodwill that comes around because it's so easy to have like cynical comedy and like you know angry comedy or whatever but that's not what this show was so to kind of like bring back that vibe for him and his life and then for people that watch it I, yeah I, I think that that's a great take you know if you're going to do it in live action that way so hey maybe you do that and people are liking it and then you go the animated route after the fact <laughs> you're like like the, you know the the previous adventures of Parker right Rick's right theme you know that kind of stuff going on so that's great well man we could break down so many details about the show but we got to get ready for our next one it's kind of a, a sad situation that inspired our next episode but i think it will lead to some really warm memories and excitement and that is you mentioned to me matthew perry just passed away like unexpectedly suddenly and what do we do about that right like we, we feel like we need to celebrate this guy who was a tv icon he, i mean he was just yes friends but he was like on like every 80s sitcoms a guest star you know and then he had he had several series you know after friends even that he was like trying to keep going but we decided you know for our purposes what's an obscure 
but truly unique and wild show that we could talk about. And this is not one, but two shows. Because let me just read this brief description on Wikipedia for you. Second Chance is an American sitcom which aired on Fox from September 26th to November 28th, 1987. The series was then revamped under the new title, Boys Will Be Boys, and ran in the new format from January 16th to May 14th, 1988. This is just an amazing piece of history. It is talks about how networks will revamp and change trying to get a hit. So we're going to have a lot to discuss. And the best part is, the stuff is on YouTube. You guys could go find Boys Will Be Boys. You can look up Second Chance and be like, this is so 80s and you're gonna love it so go check it out watch it and get prepared for our december episode as we celebrate matthew perry and his career and uh this interesting uh you know bump along the road i guess on his way to friends all right well thanks again for listening and until next time gentlemen synchronize watches This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.